Hello and welcome back to Talk and Chop, the official podcast of the official student newspaper at Florida State University, uh, the FSBU. Uh, as always, I am Logan Grutchfield, and uh, we've got a great episode tonight. Um, I'm glad to bring back a, uh, a, a former host of Talk and Chop, believe it or not. Gary Putnick was the host of the show last year, and um, he has unfortunately been demoted to the managing editor position <laughs> at the uh, FSBU. And uh, Gary, good to have you on. I remember when everything was first starting with this podcast, when uh, you know we were recording episodes about FSU softball. I remember being in a hotel room in Orlando and coming on for some of those initial episodes, and I'm glad to see that you know it, it has hopefully gotten a little better since then. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I mean, thank you for having me. And like, it's great to see how you guys have grown since I've left. I'm happy to see that this project keeps continuing to grow since I've started it last year. Absolutely. And I know that uh, we've got plenty of talented guys behind me that, you know, will be, be able to, or talented people behind me that be able to keep the ball rolling for next year, hopefully. And uh, I am excited to see what, um, you know, what goes on there. So um, that'll be that'll be exciting to watch as as uh, we move into next year. But first, I want to start with uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. And before we get into some of the, you know, some of the criticisms that we might have, of which I know there are many, I want to ask you first. I know you were there for that Elijah Cabell bomb and a half. Can you can you tell me about what that was like? So actually, I wasn't there. I was watching at home. I actually wasn't even watching at home because I was too busy covering the FSU Seminole uh, oh my gosh, forgive me. Or Florida okay. State matchup. Yeah, so no you're, no, you're good. I was covering the women's golf tournament at the time for Florida State. And so I got back and I got flooded with texts on my way back from the golf course. And I saw a bunch of messages saying like, oh my gosh, did you just see what Elijah Cabell just did? Because seeing the replay, like, I mean... I was scouring the internet trying to find this highlight and FSU baseball wasn't posting it. No one was posting it. I think it took them about two hours afterwards. I think uh, uh family barbecue was the first to post it on Twitter. And I mean, that was a monster shot. I mean, I posted the about around the exact distance where I could approximate it to on Twitter the other night. And like, it was close. Like if you know, like that center or the left center field, like parking yeah. lot uh, behind uh, Dick Hauser, there's like a little bit of a dirt area around uh, Chieftain Way around there. That's where the ball would have landed. I was actually driving by on my, on uh, Monday uh, afternoon. I was I drove through that parking lot, seeing if I could find the ball there. I could not find it. Yeah, I'm I'm sure there was definitely a lot of, of fans lurking around in that parking lot. I know mm -hmm. that FSU baseball obviously you know, on a normal night would have a ton of, ton of fans there. And I'm sure that some mm -hmm. of the people that might be squeezed out due to uh, capacity restrictions this year might just be hanging out out there, having a great time. And I can't blame them, but uh, I did see on Twitter, you know, I do want to highlight the, uh, the investigative journalism that you were doing and, you know, mm -hmm. looking at, I, I, I liked your tweet where you said, okay, you know, how far would this have had to go to hit the leech? <laughs> so yeah. I got a, I got a real kick out of that. Um, but, I mean, I would say that, you know, that was definitely the brightest spot of this weekend for FSU baseball. I mean, it was it was a, a rough. I do not think a three game sweep at the hands of Pitt was on anybody's radar coming into this weekend. And I mean, it was a pretty frustrating way for for that series to go. A one nothing loss that I was at on Friday night with just, I mean, blown opportunities left and right. 
a 7-2 loss on Saturday, and then a 9-7, 13-inning loss on Sunday. Um, and, I mean, what has really seemed to me like the name of the game to begin this season, at least, is missed opportunities with runners on base. It has been just ridiculous for me. But, um, I mean, at, kind of at first blush, Gary, what have you – what have you seen so far? Because I know you were talking on Tomahawk uh, Tomahawk Talk late, earlier this week and, you know, had a lot to say. Yeah, I mean, like this, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Runners left on base and just not being able to capitalize offensively. This offense, I mean, they started off pretty well against that in the series against North Florida for the first weekend of the year. They came back after that uh, first uh, opening day loss and then came back with two wins to win that whole series there. But they cannot get any. They can't get anything done at the plate right now. Solely because I still believe this mindset set by Mike Martin Senior is still being withheld or being held within the program there by Junior, as uh, the program is still kind of saying, like, "Hey, we're going to work for walks, and that's going to be the way it's going to work right now." Because I mean, as of right now, this team is sitting around now forty-two total walks this season, mm-hmm. seven hit by pitches, but they also have seventy-three strikeouts, and that's. In my opinion, as a baseball person, as a person who's watched baseball and a person who's played baseball for quite a long time, that's a that's ridiculous. And this program has to kind of find a way to cut down those strikeouts and not really work for walks, but instead work to try and make contact with the ball. Because in college baseball, you're going to get a lot of guys who are going to make errors. I mean, you look at Nader DeSados over there at, sec- at shortstop. He makes errors just due to the volume of baseballs that are hit his direction. And so if you play balls, if you put balls in play, you're most likely going to find base. I I completely agree. And I think that point you make just about college baseball, you know, you definitely stand to benefit more on average just by putting the ball in play so much, you know, where, you know, looking for walks, I can understand the, the kind of, I have seen uh, Mike Martin Jr. It looks like he's definitely had a propensity to call the steal a lot early in the season. But, um, I mean, it's I, – I totally agree with you. I think that just, you know, by getting the bat on the ball, you make good things happen. And, and looking for walks is kind of a – I don't want to say counterintuitive, but it's not not the strategy that I would take. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, and, yeah, talking about strikeouts, I mean, that has been – this team is looking at 12 strikeouts a game. I know against Pitt on Friday, I believe they struck out 17 times. You know, I believe it was 19. I think it was 19, 19. when it got down yeah. to it at the end, which is ridiculous mm-hmm. because they're looking at so many pitches down the, into bad counts. And when you have Mike Martin, like you said, Mike Martin's calling a lot for steals, calling a lot for bunts, calling a lot for more aggressive play out of this offense, at least when you have runners on the base paths, you cannot be sitting there looking. You have to be swinging the bat and looking for balls in play. And I know – there's that worry of possible double play uh, implications. But if you put the ball in play, like you, like we've talked about, you're more likely to find bait, find uh, on base position that way. Yeah, I totally agree. And I would think that, you know, when you have guys that, like you said, against Pitt, I mean, it, it was just ridiculous. Um, I mean, the, the amount of, uh, you know, strikeouts where, you know, you get guys that are, are looking to get on base, but then they just get totally behind the eight ball. Um, you know, down 0-2, 1-2, you know, you find yourself in, in bad counts. And, and it's it's just, you know, then when you are swinging the bat too, you're not really, I, I think, swinging with as much authority as you might be if you had a, uh, if you were in a, you know, early in the count or if you were up, say, you know, 3-1, and one, you know, 2-1 and one or something like that. 
you know, where you have a little bit more of a green light. But um, and I know that the kind of issues with just getting the ball in play, you know, striking out a lot. Um, what I did see is that um, the coaching uh, staff has sat down with guys like uh, Reese Albert and Robbie Martin, who, um, you know, have gotten on base at times. Um, Reese Albert has, uh, you know, obviously got that opening single against um, Pitt on Friday, though ultimately, I mean, the team didn't score. And um, I, Mitch Myers was absolutely dealing. But, um, I mean, so they have the talent to get on base. We know that they're veteran guys. They've been around for this program for a while, but they're they're still struggling to start the season. So, I mean, hopefully that could kind of right the ship here. But, Gary, I want to ask you, I mean, I know we're dealing with a small sample size here of um, just games played, but I want to ask you two questions. Um, I know you played baseball um, for quite a while. Um, I did for a little bit in high school, but, you know, when you're when you're 5'8 and can't hit, you get, you get phased <laughs> out of the game pretty quick. So, um, but I, I want to ask you a couple questions. I mean, do you think that you mentioned the mindset that, uh, that meat approaches, uh, the game with, do you think that some of the issues we're seeing are more, you know, just kind of early season jitters or something related to that? And then second, I want to ask you about if you think, I mean, if there's any effect that you might perceive from, um, having the Mercer games canceled this week, I mean, is it just when you have to sit in the tank like that? and think about a tough series, would you have rather had time to get that out of your system? Or do you think that, you know, there's any, um, you know, do you think that that had any effect? Well, to answer your first question here. So I don't think uh, having like these guys having first game jitters is really an issue because these guys are some of the best players in the country. This is Florida state baseball. They recruit, they've had, I mean, as according to the last uh, year's uh, recruiting rankings, this is one of the top recruiting classes in the nation. They have solid baseball players already here and being able to play year round as you can in Florida, being able to being quote out of shape or out of baseball playing shape is not something that you really should be expecting out of a Florida state program or even a, a program within the state of Florida, even all the way up to Georgia. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be expecting that, but it's something that really just comes down to the approach. And it may be like certain teams within the Mike Martin system, Mike Martin senior, it fit those players. But these guys, when you have a Elijah Cabell, you have Tyler Martin, you have a certain guys that like to hit the ball and you like to uh, be more aggressive at the dish. You need to have them swing in being aggressive in counts. So whether it be first pitch fastballs, jumping on that, because you're going to see a lot of them. And I know we saw in the pit series, the pit pitchers were throwing actually a fair amount of first pitch off speed pitches just to try and catch some players off guard because they know these guys like to jump on that pitch. And so it's something that's really just instilled within the system as of right now, where they just need to try and be more aggressive at the plate and just have that uh, wherewithal to kind of attack the baseball. Because you mentioned Robbie Martin earlier. I mean, Robbie Martin's supposedly one of these better hitters on this program. He's got a 273 average at the moment but he's also leading the team in strikeouts with 11 Ks so far this season. And that's just, it's a bit ridiculous at this point. So he needs to be able to kind of, I mean, to quote, quote the other guys that Will Ferrell movie, he's a peacock. You got to let him fly, man. I mean, he's just got to be, get, let it, let him get into his comfort zone and let him swing the stick because you can't let these guys sit back in the counts and then get down to O2 and then being forced to swing at some junk off speed low or outside in the zone and getting caught off guard like that. So it's something that 
it has to come from within and from within the coaching, whether it be Tyler Holt or someone else like that, that needs to say, hey, you got to start jumping on these pitches because they're going to be giving them to you. And can, what, can you, sorry, can you remind me on the second question? Because <laughs> I kind of just got on a long train there. You're good. You're good. I mean, I definitely, you know, I, I totally get it. Sometimes you get on the train and you don't know where it's going, but um, you get on it anyway. The second question that I had for you was, I mean, you've obviously played a lot of baseball in your day. And, and you know, maybe if you could kind of just give me your thoughts, would you have rather had, I know we saw that early week uh, couple of games against Mercer get canceled. Um, or postponed or, or whatever. Um, but would you have rather had those games to kind of, you know, purge that series from your system? Or do you think that having the extra, you know, kind of more devoted practice time is beneficial? Or, or does it not make much of a difference? What, what do you think there? In my opinion, from at least playing baseball, I played in South Florida my whole uh, life. So I was playing against pretty solid competition. I played a lot of, I played against a lot of MLB draft picks in my day. And being able to have a midweek game, having something to clear your head and at least get back into a playing flow is huge. So having that Mercer series cancel, in my opinion, is a big loss for this team because they need to be able to have something to get their minds right and get back into the swing of things. Because facing your same pitchers every day, facing whoever, Parker Messick, Connor Montgomery, or Carson Montgomery, Kwiatkowski, Scalaro, any of those guys out there, it gets a bit old after seeing them, especially because you saw them all fall along you need to be seeing some different pitches, seeing some different windups and different mechanics out there to where you can uh, get that game flow back into you. So I, I really was hoping that they were able to get this uh, Mercer game underway on Tuesday, but obviously the rain just did not permit for that. So if they were able to get those games kind of going, that I think that would have been a huge kind of confidence booster, especially even though Mercer, Mercer's not anything to scoff at. Mercer produced some solid baseball teams out there in Georgia. So they have some quality content, especially coming out of the East Cobb area over there. They can get some guys going, but still having some uh, fresh arms to look at is a huge help for this team. And sadly, they just weren't able to get that on Tuesday. Yeah, I think you make a great point. I was I was very disappointed to see that um, that game get um, or the, yeah those games get sidelined. I mean, I think that when you have something like that to focus on and also just not facing the same people over and over and over, um, it's beneficial, especially early on. Um, and uh, one other thing you made you made this point earlier. Um, I just wanted to get that in. Um, in a lot of my, um, I, I know, I also want to shout out Brett Nevitt. I know he has done just fantastic reporting on this baseball team, reading a lot of his stuff. And then my conversations that I've had with a few guys on this team. I mean, it, it has been, they have talked quite a bit about the, you know, condition that they were getting able to get into in the off season, especially with, um, you know, a, a lot of them cited uh, Jimmy Belanger, you know, the pitching coach for Florida State. Um, and obviously, I think the pitching staff has made some kind of early strides e- e- under him, at least last season as well. You know, but like you said, there's really no excuse to be kind of sluggish early in the season. And maybe jitters was the wrong word to to use. But I mean, it just kind of slow out of the gate. Um, and I want to ask you here. I don't want to, you know, wade into anything crazy, but um, I, I know that I know you talked a little bit about this. Um there were a couple of what I thought managerial decisions that were interesting this weekend. And obviously I'm saying that because the, the payoff was not what we might've hoped for. One that I can think of was a uh, pinch hitting 
Nico Baldor <laughs> in the in the bottom of the eighth inning, and I was there for that one. And I mean, that was kind of a a rough at bat to have at that point in the game. I, I mean, especially when you're down by one, you know, all it takes is a single to tie the game. You know, I mean, to honest, quite honestly, put you ahead, depending on how it might be hit. And then the other one that I would think of, and again, with, with pitching changes, I don't want to be, you know, too, I, I don't know that you can necessarily get a ton of, of like, Oh, you could have done this or that, but it's one of those things you can think about. I thought um, putting in chase Haney in the ninth inning um, when Hunter Purdue was also warming up, obviously Haney did not have it got um, through four out of eight pitches for strikes and gave up that tying home run. Um, I mean, I don't want to be too, too critical here, but you know, what did you think about those moves? Man, you know how to push my buttons, bringing up the Nico Baldor switch there. I mean, that, that was, that's been one of the most frustrating uh, coaching decisions that I've seen since uh, Mike Martin left. Oh my gosh. Why can't remember his name at the moment in the Mississippi state uh, regional game three, two to three years ago. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Why can't I remember his name at the moment, but still, Nonetheless, he left a pitcher in that uh, was over 120 pitches in after an hour and 30 minute rain delay. It was just a bad situation there. That's been one of the worst coaching decisions that I've seen out of Florida State in a long time. And putting in a guy who had a, in his 18 and 19 season in Nico Baldor, I'm speaking of, he batted 173 in that season. He had over uh, 40 games or so worth of playing time, batted 173, and putting him him. Over Nader DeSantis, who I know is coming off injury, who I know has maybe some issues going on with his health-wise, and it was 0-3 on the night with three strikeouts, but still, subbing out subbing out your, quote, best hitter. He's, in my opinion, the best hitter on this Florida State team. Subbing out for a guy who, in my opinion, is subpar is completely ridiculous, and I don't think that was the right decision at the end of the day. And I know you can say that looking in hindsight because it's a lot easier saying it that way. We can talk about that with Jim Beheim and what he said a couple of days ago about uh, certain decisions that he has made over the years. But that switching out Nico, putting in Nico Baldor is a god awful decision, in my opinion. Because why would you take the bat out of your best hitter's hand? That's all mm-hmm. I got. Yeah, yeah, that's a real. That is a real head scratcher. I, I mean, and, and I was just looking. Um, I don't mean to give you a total diversion, but the, the pitcher was Drew Parrish in that Mississippi State mm. game. And that was, I, I, I remember how much of a head scratcher that was because he'd already pitched eight innings. Was that like 110 pitches? And then there was an hour and a half rain delay. And that one, you know, and I don't want to be divining too much into, um, you know, these kind of isolated incidents. But the, the, the sense that I almost get in both of those is it's like, you know, you, you trust your guys, but I don't mm-hmm. know that those are appropriate situations to kind of, I don't want to say hero ball, but like, you know, put, putting guys in chances like that. It's like, you know, I don't know. It's not what I would have done, but um, I, I want to briefly hear um, before I know we've got plenty of territory left to cover tonight. Um, I want to ask you just briefly about a couple of things. Losing, um, I mean, I know Tyler Martin and Robbie, and, and excuse me, um, Matt Nelson are dealing with some, um, it, just a couple little tiny injuries. Um, you know, their game time decisions for Friday, I think though that is, um, you know, that could be a little troublesome because they've been very, Tyler Martin especially has been very steady at the top of the lineup. Matt Nelson has definitely shown uh, that power that he was kind of hyped up about um, 
prior to the season starting. The one last thing that I want to, I want to give a little bit of time to pitching here. I know we've spent a lot of time talking about the hitting side of the equation is um, Parker Messick. I mean, he hasn't been, um, I mean, he, he hasn't been bad. I don't want to say, but um, I know that he talked um, prior to the season starting about, because he did appear entirely in relief last year. Um, he did talk about just kind of the adjustment to pitching as a starter his uh, season debut obviously was not probably where he would have wanted to be. And then last Friday, I know that he, um, you know, I got pulled a little early, but, um, you know, in a close game like that, it was probably ultimately the right call. You know, what are you looking to see out of him? I mean, as, as the season comes on, man, I was, so, I'm, I'm still high on him. I really like Parker Messick. I loved him last year. What I saw in that short uh, time frame that we got before the COVID break, but I think that's the right decision to keep sticking with him as their Friday starter. I know he's going to be sticking with them as we head into this UVA series here this weekend. And I like the addition of the curveball. I like how he's been working all that in there. So I'm happy with how he's been progressing. It's obviously just a little bit of like that. I mean, like I know I kind of discounted opening day jitters and all that earlier, but pitchers is a little bit different in that situation. And I think he's still having a little bit of that, but I really do believe I still do believe in him as a pitcher and I think he still can progress really well but I just know putting him as a Friday starter that puts a lot of pressure on you as a pitcher especially in college baseball especially at this level especially going into a series against uh Virginia who's a uh, top 20 team in the nation in my opinion probably even a top 10 if we really aren't looking at rankings. they're at number 18 right yeah, now yeah 18 and 16 in some different rankings as you look at it but UVA is a really solid ball club year in and year out. Obviously, they won the College World Series a couple of years ago. But Parker Messick, I like it how I do think this is a good decision by me as he's sticking with Messick as his Friday guy. That really does help instill some confidence as him or for him where he's able to say, hey, you're still our guy. I'm still going to give you the ball on Friday nights and you can still go out there and shove it. And I do believe he's going to settle it down as we kind of we move through the season. But I really just do believe it just needs he just needs to kind of settle himself down and kind of find him find a spot. I agree, you know, and I, I think that the one thing I mean, we've we've definitely had a lot to talk about um, for baseball. But I think one thing that has seemed very true to me that, that you mentioned there about both Martins is that you cannot accuse them of waffling on their players or mm -hmm. not being confident in their guys that has seemed to me like a, a recurrent theme I mean obviously a high degree of confidence in Parker Messick to have him as you said in that Friday spot you know kind of where you're where you're putting your number one guy so um and that's definitely a lot um and I, I, quite honestly I could say the same thing about I know Carson Montgomery had a lot of hype coming into this year but um I mean having him as what he is shaping up to be at a number two um, as one of the Saturday guys, I think that's, you know, quite a, you know, that's a pretty good um, bestowing of confidence right there. Mm -hmm. So um, I do want to get to, I know we've got a little bit to discuss with um, baseball and basketball, and I know you want to touch on um, golf a little bit um, tonight. Uh, any final thoughts from you or what you might be expecting against Virginia this week? I, I'm, I'm still kind of iffy on the Carson Montgomery decision. I know he decided to uh, meet, decided to put uh as the Saturday starter or the second slash third day starter for the series against UVA, Montgomery is now out as a starter for this weekend. So I'm I'm iffy on that decision, but I, I understand why he's going with that just because Montgomery has looked a bit shaky so far. I mean, he's given up four hits over five innings. 
And he's not looked like what we've all expected him to be. Because, I mean, D1 Baseball and a bunch of other publications were touting this FSU pitching staff as being a um, as a phenomenal staff and probably the, what they were saying is the heart and soul almost of this program, of this team in this season. And it's just not looking like it as of right now. But I'm, I'm okay with him deciding to put Hubbard in as that uh, starter on Saturday. And maybe that mo- means Montgomery comes in maybe as a, a long reliever role on Saturday, Sunday, or Friday night. But I still want to see more out of him. It's still a little bit early to tell on Montgomery so far. Certainly. And I did see that with Montgomery, the reason for him not starting this week was because um, uh, Meat had him start the intra-squad squim- scrimmage that they did um, earlier this week against um, uh, against themselves, obviously. So um, he said, I think it was just kind of to rest him. And that was kind of uh, what he viewed as, as a way to c- kind of continue his development. Um, but I agree. And I think having Hubbard, who was looked solid over the weekend, I mean, in long relief, obviously – he took the loss, but that was after, you know, four innings of long relief. So um, he's looked very, he's looked solid to start the season. And I know him and um, uh, Messick are often compared as well. So uh, it's, it's interesting to see how all these guys will, um, will play this season. Now I do want to get to, and, and obviously um, th- this, this, the regular season is over. But I do want to just kind of talk with you about about women's basketball. And I think that it I, I certainly want to know just the, the struggles that this team has gone through. I mean, I've I've definitely covered my fair share of women's basketball is the first kind of regular thing I covered for the FSU. And um, I mean, just this season, especially not having coached uh, coach Sue Semra uh, losing, I mean, uh, Naj Wolfuk, um, Nikki Akamu, and Kaya Gillespie. That was um, 65% of their scoring from last season did not return this year. And I'm, we've seen similar things. Uh, what I think of is 2018 to 2019, where, I mean, they lost their starting five. But, um, and then, I mean, kind of the constant, constant, constant um, scheduling, you know, workarounds. And then um, obviously kind of the, COVID going through the program. They had that big stretch where they could, you know, they were hardly dressing more than they were dressing fewer than 10 players for seven for a seven game stretch. Um, and, and I also do want to, you know, before I want to highlight or shout out, I think it was on Tomahawk talk. Somebody was on, it might, it might have been you, Gary, who said that they had full confidence in Florida state being Louisville a couple weeks ago. And I, I remember seeing that on Twitter and being like, did this person just drop uh, acid? I'll, I'll tell you what, that was not me because I did not have full confidence in uh, FSU taking on and beating Louisville in that uh, win that they had, that 68-59 to win. I'm, I think that was maybe Austin Reynolds, you know Austin. Uh, yeah, and I saw that, and I was just like, Austin, what happened here? Did you, you know, and maybe – but they, they shocked me with that. That's a game that I want to point out. Uh, I think that the double overtime win against Clemson – when they had like eight players dressed out. I mean, I think the the tenacity and the grit of these players cannot be, cannot be underestimated, Gary. Um, and I want to just, you know, Florida State, obviously they have their first game tomorrow against um, Syracuse. But um, any insights from you, I mean, just on what it kind of, well, so what we've been preaching on Tomahawk Talk this this whole season for women's basketball is just pure consistency out of this lineup. And obviously that's tough to have when you have the COVID breaks and all that and you're not able to dress as many players as you'd hope for. 
but consistency is just something that we've been looking for throughout the whole season, and that's something that they have not been able to find. I mean, their longest winning streak is two games, really. So it's tough to really find that at all, and especially something that I was really hoping for for this Florida State team is that they'd be able to find consistency from the three-point spot, and the person that they relied on at least last season, and that was a huge three-point uh, threat last year, Sammy Puisis. She just has not been there this season for the Knowles, at least three-point shooting-wise. And this whole team, they just have not been a great shooting team. But speaking to that win against Louisville, what they were able to do and what was huge for them is that they were able to bring Louisville down to their level and get a, like what you said, and play with some grit and be, have a gritty win, a tough win against Louisville and bring them down to their level. And if they want to uh, make a run at this ACC title here this weekend, they're going to have to do that to the next couple teams that they face because obviously they can they can still play their game against Syracuse, but still, when they get to the semifinal, if they get to the semifinal, if they get against NC State probably or Louisville, I'm assuming it's going to be one of those two teams there, It's you're going to have to bring those teams down to your level. And if you cannot, they're going to have their way with them. Certainly. I, 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 I totally agree. I think that FSU is definitely going to have to play their game, you know, so that's going to, we're going to have to see, um, you know, just kind of strong rebounding play. I know that's been kind of a persistent theme um, in coach Sue's teams. And then I know obviously um, coach Wyckoff's been around for a while. I mean, she's an FSU lifer that is definitely carried over to this year. Um, and I mean, this is definitely not going to be an easy road through the ACC tournament. Florida State's at the number four seed. Syracuse is at the number three seed. Um, but I, one one player that uh, I did talk to a little bit this year, um, obviously Morgan Jones, I think, has, has kind of taken over as, um, you know, where like Naj Wolfolk would have been last year as just kind of a really, really solid an offensive threat kind of at all at all times. You know, we've seen multiple games where she puts up like 30 points or something like that. She has been dominant this year. But somebody that I do want to touch on, I think, who's been a, a critical part of this team's success is Bianca Jackson. Um, especially, I think, um, I mean, her tra- – I know that she had a year on the scout team, but moving from that shooting guard position to running the offense as a point guard is just – I mean, that's a big, big transition in a normal time. And then, be, you know, being in a pandemic, being, you know – having all the kind of momentum losses that we saw this season and having a wave of games canceled or, Oh, well, you're now playing at, you know, another school on three days notice and it's on the road. You know, I think that she was really, I mean, she was a, one of the top, you know, players on the team in terms of minutes. And I, I know that, um, you know, offensively um, her contributions were, were notable, um, but she's somebody that I want to highlight and who I'll be keeping an eye on against. Uh, yeah, against and it's it felt like this season like goes back to that consistency that we were talking about on Tomahawk Talk is that it felt like this whole year that it's kind of been a back and forth between Bianca Jackson and Morgan Jones is like who's going to be the player that scores the most points this game and who's going to be the player to, quote, take over. And it's really just been between them and maybe every now and then you get Courtney Weber stepping in as that person to take over, but – I just I want to see those three players be able to play consistently as a three together, as a cohesive three, and find their way to put good results together. But because we just haven't seen them, because like we see Bianca Jackson put up twenty four, we see Morgan Jones put up twenty plus, and we see Courtney Weber put up like plus over fifteen points, but we just don't see them all kind of do it together in one game. 
I totally agree. And then one one question that I do want to ask you, Gary, um, you know, obviously we've still got a lot of time in the, um, you know, we've got the ACC tournament and then I imagine Florida State will likely be in the NCAA tournament. So that'll be, that's a lot to watch. But looking ahead to next season, I talked about somebody who I wanted to keep an eye on and that's Bianca Jackson. Um, who do you want to see take a step forward? For me, it's got to be River Baldwin. Um, I have seen, I mean, I, she's got, got the size, obviously, but just, I mean, she hasn't really looked particularly mobile for a bigger player. And, I mean, it just has kind of seemed like she's been the odd, odd, odd player out in terms of just minutes. And I, she's had her moments. But I, I would want to see her really take it to the next well, level. Well, so next. yeah, that's a that's a very good pick. And a person that I would like to see, and that someone that came in with a bunch of hype around them, is Isabella Nicoletti. She, I mean, she came in with a ton of hype around her, and then she missed her first two seasons due to knee injuries. And I was expecting her to kind of come off this bench and have a, a good role at, for this team here. But obviously, she just really hasn't done all that much this season. So. If you're looking for someone maybe that is kind of off the beaten path, it's Isabella Nicoletti. I really do believe she has the skill set and the talent to kind of get it off the bench role, but it's something that this team needs in terms of consistency and help along, like just being able to put together a solid three together. I, I totally agree. And then somebody it, it kind of, for me, one of my final thoughts is somebody who I might've said that about previously, who I did see do very well, this year that I, I want to point out, um, I think would be Valencia Myers. Um, you know, I, I know in the past, I, it kind of seemed to me like she was the, you know, obviously with a very talented team, like, um, you know, with the Nikki Naj and, and Kaya, you know, that kind of trio right there was um, really, but I, I felt like that she's really stepped up in that forward position this year. And I, I'm glad to see her and uh, Courtney Weber as well. I, I can say the exact same thing. Um, so I, I am excited to see, obviously, how far they go this year. But I'm, I'm glad to see those players step up. And, and I think, you know, River Baldwin, obviously. Um, Isa Nicoletti, I, I agree. I was, you know, I know she had a, a kind of a tough road to hoe, you know, getting back to um, getting back to just playing after, you know, the injuries and setbacks. Um, and then a transfer that I do want to highlight, you know, who had some eligibility issues and injury issues, but has been a, a really – I think welcome addition to this team is uh, Tiana England, who can kind of take some of the weight off of um, Bianca Jackson's shoulders at, a, at, at, at the guard spot and uh, get her. I know Coach Wyckoff talked about, you know, uh, Bianca's a little more comfortable, you know, shooting at the key, you know, getting out to a little more out around the perimeter and getting her there is, you know, just kind of opens up a little more for this team. So I, I know I was kind of, you know, going – all over the place there, but it, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what this team does in the, yeah, those are all great points there. I mean, I, Valencia Myers is, uh, is a good, or it's a great pick. And so is England there, but still, I, I want to see Nicoletti kind of take that step forward and kind of show that she's getting back into form because she's someone that I really do believe can be a huge help for this team going forward in the future. I totally agree. And then I, I do want to, talk a little bit about the men's team here so any any final thoughts from you Gary um, no I think all I got at least for prediction wise I, I really do see this team at least making it uh, getting past Syracuse tomorrow night on Friday and then maybe getting into that semifinal mm -hmm. round I know it's going to be tough going up against Louisville who's going to have 
a uh, FSU is going to have a huge target on their back after that upset in the regular season. So it's going to be a tough one to get past the Cardinals, but still, if they can get into that semifinal, that's going to be huge. I, I agree. I know we, this team has the tools to do it. I, I think that when you talk about consistency, I got to agree. And I know that I mean, this season has been far from anything um, consistent for the players to expect. But, you know, I, I think that it's they've got the tools, but a lot of the, I think, implement, implementation, I'd say, would be kind of a, a question mark for me. Um, so but then now go, shifting over to the men's side. Um, I, I would say it's the opposite after, you know, last night's victory over Boston college, you know, I don't really know that we, that we learned anything that we did about this team, but I, I do think that it's, you know, if you're a FSU basketball fan, it is pretty heartening to see this team, you know, have a pretty solid all around performance. I don't know how much, um, you know, I don't know that, I, I mean, I talked with uh, Ben Meyerson, um, another staff writer last night on the, on the, his uh, live session, about this and I don't know that um you know we kind of felt like we were nitpicking for some of the uh issues I think it was turnovers and uh rebounds you know some of those are more atypical than others but um uh, just overall I think the the significance of last night getting the green vipers out to start you know and then obviously MJ coming off the court was uh for the final time I think was a pretty emotional moment for everybody that that um that witnessed it. Um, I watched that game um, all the way through and Gary, what, what did you take away from that? Um, that's that penultimate game of the year, obviously before um, they wind up again. I mean, I thought it was a solid game. game for them. I mean, maybe a bit too many three pointers for my liking. I mean, they put up 27, sh- uh, 27 shots from beyond the arc with making 13 of them. 48% still a really solid number for three point shooting. But I mean, I I still really I mean I'll, I keep going back to this every single game. I really like Raekwon Gray. I mean, he's still been a consistent player. I mean, he put up 16 points in this game against him, and he's had over 10 games this season where he's put up over 10 points. And he's someone that really is not maybe getting the rec- national recognition he deserves. But someone when he is confident, when he's able to drive to the lane with that confidence. He is a huge impact player. And that's something that you saw in that last game against UNC where they were able to stop the uh, flow around the paint. That is a huge factor for this program. I totally agree. And I think, you know, uh, definitely fingers crossed about him coming back for next season because I think that he could really just take it to a level that, you know, kind of makes you, makes you drool when you think about it almost. You know, it really just... I mean, he has been his progression has been really something to watch just the way that he, you know, kind of dominates guys in the interior, um, quite honestly, has been I've I've really enjoyed that. One thing that I have asked um, that is a consideration, I think now is um, some of the buzz that I have heard about. Um, gosh, what is it? Uh, possible tournament seating. And now we know that FSU has got the uh, the double buy going into the AC, ACC tournament. Kind of the, the buzz that I think, and I want to get your assessment on where you think most likely this team is going to end up seeding wise. You know, what I have seen is that the ACC Blue Bloods, you know, UNC and Duke and, and even teams like that have been strong in the past, like Louisville, are just not performing at the level that we, we would expect. I mean, Virginia and Virginia Tech, I think at, at this time, are the only other ranked teams in the ACC so what I've heard is that kind of holds FSU back a little bit but um, 
the, the wisdom that I've heard is that FSU would could ascend to a number two seed if things fall their way. But like, yeah, if FSU wins the ACC tournament, they're a two seed for sure. But if they lose either in the second in that second game that they play or the third game, they'll be a three or a four. And then if they, in my opinion, if they lose this first game that they play in the ACC tournament, they can be a four or a five. So it really comes down to how they play this first game. And if they win that first game, they're obviously solidifying themselves as a three or a four seed, which is a very good position to be. But it's all it. You can't really look past your first opponent, and obviously, right now we don't know exactly who that'll be. It might be a Duke or maybe someone like that. But as of right now, I think a lot of the teams that are on the other side of the bracket are a lot of the teams that FSU has lost to early, uh, earlier this season, which is pretty is pretty nice because you don't really have to worry about Georgia Tech or you don't have to worry about some of the other teams kind of coming and uh, getting you from behind again because. I know FSU had a really tough time defending uh, Alvarado from Georgia Tech this past or during the season. But if FSU can take care of their business in that first game and get to that semifinal and final, they're going to be a three or a three or a four, in my opinion. I totally agree. And and to be honest, you know, I've had a lot of a lot of conversations about this. Um, you know, I really look at that 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 tournament bracket and I, I struggle to think who can this team not be? You know, I don't want to get too optimistic, but I think that the the Virginia game was a real eye-opener for, you know, a lot of folks in the national media and, and an eye-opener for us, honestly. Even though we watch this team all the time, we know, we know what we're getting. Um, but, you know, that kind of, I remember the hype around that game, the pack line, pack line, pack line. You know, how are they going to handle that? And then FSU, I mean, they really – and what I've been seeing a lot recently as of late is they really kind of make it happen on both ends of the court. Obviously, I know that that's really simplistic. But, um, I mean, last night especially, I thought that they were getting kind of turning defense into offense. You know, they forced so many turnovers early um, that, you know, and they, they were able to then turn those into points. They've been getting off to just really lightning fast starts. And it's been, I think, difficult for teams to opposing teams to get their feet under them. So I think that'll be a, a big key uh, as, as we move forward here. Um, and I know, Gary, you've got I, I know you want to get to golf here. Well, um, so, any, any thoughts well so one last thing on uh, FSU basketball. I mean, actually, like you said, lightning fast starts are a huge part for this team and getting out to a good lead and building up something going into that second half. But something that's been prevalent for this FSU program throughout the years, it feels like, at least during my time here in the past four years, has been how they play in the second half. Because, I mean, we saw it in that UNC game. They forced a ton of turnovers and were able to capitalize on them in the first half but then just fell just fell flat on their face in the second half. So it really comes down to how this team goes in the second half of games that will push them over the edge or maybe pull them back in certain games. Because like if they do that against UVA where they come out really strong in the first half and then slip up a little bit in that second half, UVA, a team like UVA or a team like Virginia Tech or something like that is going to be able to come back and take advantage of those mistakes. So that's something that this team really has to settle down on and focus in if they want to make a, a real run in this tournament. Absolutely. And then the one kind of addendum that I will make to um, what you just mentioned is um, the, I think that this team's ability to reset kind of themselves. We saw it in that Virginia game, you know, when Virginia came out just um, and cut like a 20 point lead to seven in like five minutes, you know, this team's kind of ability to refocus themselves. I mean, not always, you know, we did see issues uh, in like the UNC game last weekend, for example. 
Um, but I, I think more often than not, this team's ability to kind of refocus themselves when, when things are not going their way. Um, and they'll certainly see definitely um, moments like that. Yeah. I would think going forward um, that, that definitely gives me some optimism. And now, now golf, that's the, that's the big one here, Gary. Um, I know you spent, that's kind of been your calling card. I've always thought at the FSBO, you've been a, a kind of ready and, and definitely done great in your coverage. What did you see this past? Uh, yeah. You know, so, I mean, FSU golf, I mean, they think Florida state athletics, they think basketball, football, they think baseball, softball, soccer, they think a little bit of track and stuff, but golf isn't some, isn't the first thing that always comes to mind, but FSU golf has always been a really consistent program. I mean, you look at some of the players that have come out on both sides of the program. I mean, recently you have obviously Brooks Kepka, Daniel Berger, Chase Cypher, Hank LaBiota. You have Frieda Kinholt, Amanda Doherty. You have some really solid players coming out on both the men's and women's side. And this just, just continues to grow and grow. And especially it's like I was out covering the FS, the Florida State matchup, which is the women's tournament that they hold at FSU, something that they haven't held at Florida State in Tallahassee since my freshman year. That was the first article that I wrote for the FSU. It was, a co- it was coverage of the Florida State matchup uh, in 2018. They were actually able to hold their first tournament at Seminole Legacy Golf Club uh, this last weekend. And I mean, it was obviously, the course was redesigned by Jack Nicholas. It was finished last March. And it's, it's something it's really, the courses in total is amazing. I've, I've been a member there the past, uh, since last fall, I've been playing there at when it was Don Veller in my freshman year. And it's now that it's Seminole legacy after the read Nicholas, it is a beast of a course to deal with, especially the greens and in the Florida state matchup, when they had to take on the other 13 teams at this tournament, they really proved how much course knowledge and local knowledge really comes into play because at the end of this thing, this past weekend for the women's, they were the only team to finish under par. I know it's something that is absolutely crazy. And you don't see that much in golf or in in team golf like this, because that's a team score, team score under par, technically only one player. And that was Beatrice Wallen who won the tournament finished under par due to her first round 66 that's six under par she had one bogey in that friday round she had five bogeys total in the whole weekend she beatrice Wong killed it that was her first uh college win of her whole career she's a top 20 amateur golfer in the wagr rankings and it's something that really proves to be a huge asset and i think and as of right now actually golf week uh was it uh, I can't remember the exact publication, but one ranking actually posted Florida State as their number one women's program right now. So it's something that I'd maybe take with a grain of salt just due to the fact that Florida State, they finished fourth in their tournament in Orlando. I think it was the Moon Invitational hosted by Central Florida, I believe. And they, it's it's something that, like I said, you have to take with a grain of salt because every other team just did not know how to deal with this course at, Don, at uh, Seminole Legacy. Because of these greens, these greens were just the stint meter was off the charts this past weekend. Stint meter, for those who don't know, is the is the speed rating for each green. And as far as I'm concerned, it was lightning mm-hmm. fast this past weekend because I was walking around the course hearing parents and players talk about the greens. And from what I could hear in uh, passing was that it was extremely tough to deal with. And you had players who were reaching par fives with eagle chances and then putting and then finishing with a par. And that is, it's, it's insane to hear My about because usually if you reach the green with an eagle chance, you should at least finish with a birdie. You should two putt for par. 
instead of three putting or even four putting for birdie or four putting for par. And it's something that you saw a lot of this past weekend because a lot of these people don't know how to deal with these uh, greens and they don't know that local knowledge. They don't know the little tricks that trade because hanging around some of the people at this course, you, I play with a few of the members there around every now and then. And one guy that I played with who uh, uh, knows coach Tr- uh, Trey Jones, the head uh, men's golf coach, he was giving me a couple tips here and there, but like on one of the holes before playing with that guy, I wouldn't have known that every on hole four, every single putt, pretty much if you're not on one certain level, everything breaks towards uh, a certain street that runs adjacent to that hole. So, so certain things, it comes, oh it, it becomes very difficult to understand. And this course is a very tough one. And they moved some of the boxes up and they kind of like, they, it's fun with the women's, uh, court or women's team because they can kind of manipulate the course to whatever they want because the men you really just are pushing it back all the way to the limit of this course and this course according to my uh sheet that i have a uh what is it a yardage book can be pushed up to what is it it's exactly it can be pushed up to like 700 7800 yards so it's a beast of course if you played from the team tees but they were playing at, I believe, close to 6,900 this past weekend. And with Florida State shooting, the mo- shooting under par, only one uh, individual shooting under par, it's a crazy course to play. And I think this team has a lot of potential going forward, especially going into NCAAs and going forward. But I, like I said, take that, in, take that team ranking number one overall with a bit of a grain of salt because there are some really solid women's golf programs out there. And so don't buy in just yet, because I do believe that Beatrice Wallen is a great player. You're going to see her play at the Augusta Women's uh, Amateur at the end of this month, at the beginning of April at Augusta National. And uh, I think one other course in the Augusta area. And But you got players like Charlotte Heath, Amelia Williamson, who are really solid players. And I do believe they can they still have a high ceiling, but still this course is extremely tough at Seminole Legacy. It definitely sounds like it. And then last question that I'll leave you with, Gary, uh, before we wrap up here is uh, men, uh, women's. It definitely sounds like you're very complimentary of uh, Beatrice Wallen. Anybody on the men's team, I know, especially with, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but with John Pock, um, might be, you know, I, I don't know where he is at eligibility-wise, I mean, but who, who do you keep Okay, so obviously, you know, like uh, you said, the obvious answer there is John Pack, and he's a phenomenal player. I mean, he maybe not, he might, he might not, like jump off the page in terms of driving distance because he's a bit of a smaller guy. He doesn't maybe have that distance there, but his short game is phenomenal. That's something that Florida state golf really focuses in on because all the players in college golf, they can really do well off the tee and they can hit fairways. They can uh, be well, uh, be in a good spot on shots on par fives. But what really separates the good players from the great players is from 140 yards and in, and John pack has really done a great job of, uh, growing in that range. I mean, he won, he was the low AM at the U S open this past year when Bryson DeChambeau won at Wingfoot uh, this past fall. And he's real, and he's number one in the PGA tour U rankings. And that's something that's really good. And he's uh, going to be on his second Walker cup team in a walk for those who don't know the Walker cup is the, uh, is kind of the amateur slash collegiate version of the Ryder cup. And so the U.S. Uh, team won their last ride, their last Walker Cup. I believe it was over at uh, 
it wasn't Royal St. George's. It was uh, it was Royal St. Liverpool or someone like that over in England a couple summers ago. He did really well in that. I think he was the best player for the U.S. that tournament. But the other player for the men's side, Vincent Norman. I mean, he was a, a transfer from a low D2 school, and he has absolutely killed it this past uh, uh, these past few tournaments. His uh, three results so far, he is a T7 at the Camp Creek Seminole Invite. He has a number one finish at the Timaquana Collegiate Tournament. And then he has a T16 at the Seminole Intercollegiate. They hosted the Seminole Intercollegiate over at uh, Golden Eagle over here in Tallahassee just because they don't want to give teams a kind of a look at Seminole legacy because they will be hosting an NCAA regional here this uh, spring, I believe in May. So Vincent Norman is, a, is the, in my opinion, if you're not going to look at John Pack because he's the obvious answer, Vincent Norman is the guy to look at because as of right now, he has a six point, or 69.89 scoring average. And John Pack right now has a 69.89 scoring average as well. So those are two great guys to be looking at going forward. And from, in my opinion, this both FSU golf programs, have the, the, the ceiling is the roof, to quote Michael Jordan, and because these teams are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So, well, I, I, Gary, I know you're definitely give some great analysis there. You're very invested in just following this, this golf team. And um, I, I really appreciate it. Golf is not um, a sport that I've, I've had the pleasure of covering. And it's, it's one that I have pro- not given enough attention to during my time here. So I greatly appreciate you, you coming on and uh, talking about that and, and for coming on this show in particular, it's, it's been, you know, I'm glad to, get one former host on. Yeah, I'm happy to come by. And I mean, uh, I mean, like I said, Florida, people say when Florida State, they, when they talk about Florida State, they're either saying it's a football school, a basketball school. I even say a softball school or a soccer school. But really, if you look at it, Florida State's a golf school. As in the last 10 years, Florida State has been phenomenal on the golf course. And it's something to look forward going, look uh, to going forward. Because, I mean, you look at the PGA Tour, you got great players out there. Brooks Kepka, he won the waste management out in Phoenix. And then you have Daniel Berger winning the Pebble Beach Pro-Am over there at Pebble Beach in California. And I mean, you could have your pick of the litter when it comes to those two guys, when it comes to making picks for golf. And I mean, you can, I, I could go on for hours about like who's a better golfer at the moment, because you could really make an argument for Daniel Berger being the best Florida state golfer out there at this time. Yeah. Um, Certain, certainly there. So, um, Gary, I, I appreciate you coming on uh, once again. This has been Talk and Shop, the official podcast of the FSU and Florida Flambeau. You just heard from Gary Putnick, who is um, uh, Gary. Yes, I'm the sports director and host of Tomahawk. Tom Tom Tom. I'm the sports director at WVFS Tallahassee 89.7 FM here. If you're in the local area, if you can't listen to us in the Tallahassee area, we're available on WVFS.FSU.edu on your uh, internet or your computer, your phone, whatever you may have it. We're on 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Monday nights, so catch us there. We also post our uh, shows on podcast forum just like you do on on Talk and Chop. We post them to Tomahawk Talk on Spotify, Apple, whatever you may have it, whenever it comes to getting your podcast. But, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm managing it as well at the FSVU, but that'll be shortly come that'll be coming to a close shortly as we kind of make our way through the end of the semester as I will be graduating this semester 
Absolutely. And I know it's been a, a long run for you with uh, the V89 and uh, FSVU, and, and you've done great work at both. So I just wanted to make note of that before we close it out. This has been another episode of uh, Talk and Shop, uh, the official sports podcast of the official student newspaper, the FSVU. So once again, this uh, I am Logan Grutchfield, and I was joined tonight by Gary Putnick. Uh, make sure to tune in next week.